If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 12, verses 12 through 23, and the text is in the bulletin on the next page for you. The Gospels are always highlighting the fact that Jesus is not what anybody expected from a Savior. He's not what anybody expected. Uh, The Scriptures anticipated him everywhere, but uh, people, when he arrived, uh, were scratching their heads. Our presuppositions about who he should be, we think he should be, uh, those are challenged by the Gospels and by Jesus as he appears to us in the Gospels. Our instincts about what salvation should mean are confronted and overturned. We want one thing, and he gives us another. We assume one thing, and he reveals another. Jesus is unpredictable to us. And if you've thought about it that way, Jesus is unpredictable to us, but not because he's tricksy and false. Um, He's unpredictable to us because we are consistently wrong in our expectations and our assumptions about him. You could say we're so consistently wrong that we are reliably wrong. Reliably wrong, predictably wrong, you could say. We're predictably wrong about Jesus and about God. It's like clockwork. And there's something very interesting about that. There's something actually, I think, reassuring about the unique unpredictability of Jesus. We're talking about this a little bit this week, a few of us. Other people are predictable. Other people are understandable. They're relatable. It isn't that hard to get a handle on people other than Jesus, whether you're talking about people around you in your life or public figures or even anyone in the Bible except for Jesus. They're all just like us, maybe with slight variations here and there, but they're all just like us. But when it comes to Jesus, we'll just stare at him with blank looks in our faces, and we need him to repeat things for us over and over again and over again. Nobody says they've got Jesus all figured out. And having Jesus all figured out is not a prerequisite for having a relationship with him. That's good news. But we need to keep checking our thoughts against the scriptures because we are dependably prone to get off track with our thinking, with our affections, the things we want, things we pray for. We're uh, dependably prone to get off track. So when it comes to Jesus, if we should expect anything at all, you could have this expectation and it would be all right. It's that we've got the wrong expectations. And that's okay. That's okay. Uh, He was perfectly willing to come in spite of our persistence in wrong expectations about who he is, who he should be, what he should be doing. So we should question our expectations. We should question our understanding of the gospel of Christ himself and what it means to have a relationship with God through him. We should question our understanding of those things. We should question our motives and our prayers. And we should get used to the idea that in this life anyway, Jesus will remain to some degree or other unpredictable to us, surprising to us, and disorienting to us, but really really reorienting consistently reorienting us on his unexpected goodness. It's good news that we can't can't predict him, that he's unpredictable, right? It's good news for us. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we do need your help, as always, 
Anytime we open your word, whether we're alone, whether we're in a small group, or whether we're here at church, we need your help. We need your Spirit's help to give us eyes to see and ears to hear you as you're revealed to us in your holy word. So we pray for that help now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard, and this is the feast of the Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I'm going to stop there. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So we'll look at the rest of that with next week's sermon. So... uh, Everybody knows, this is common sense, everybody knows that occupation by a foreign power is not ideal, right? It's not pleasant. It's not, maybe, maybe it's not the way things should be, occupation by a foreign power. That was the status of the people of Israel during Jesus' time. They lived under Roman occupation. Their little tiny corner of the world was taken over, just like the rest of the world was taken over by the Roman Empire. And this is especially difficult, this idea of occupation by a foreign power, which is unpleasant and not ideal. It's especially difficult to endure when, like Israel, you have a vision of the supremacy of your own people. When you believe that you've been chosen by God not just to enjoy national independence and equality with other free nations, but actually, ultimately, rule over all nations. To be the greatest, to be the first, to be the ones that rule everyone else. That was sort of their expectation, right? Because of your understanding of the Holy Scriptures, you're expecting a deliverer, a king, who will lead you to military victory. And his salvation is a political one. Um. It would have been easy to interpret the scriptures this way. Daniel chapter 7, we look at it uh, somewhat frequently, so maybe it's familiar language to you, but it's a vision that Daniel has of, um, of the Messiah being presented to God himself. And it says, to him, to the Messiah, to the Christ, <clears throat> was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So as one under Roman rule in ancient Israel, you expect this means a mighty person will come to lead your people out from under the Gentiles' rule and then uh, turn and march and conquer all others. Not just freedom, but sovereignty over all other nations. How else does one establish a universal everlasting kingdom like the one that's in Daniel's vision? How else does that happen? It's fairly obvious. And how satisfying would that be? If you're enjoying the Roman occupation, 
you know, this unideal thing. How satisfying would it be? Someone to lead our people to their rightful place as the first and greatest of all nations in everlasting empire, that king, that king would have to be strong. That king would have to be uniquely powerful like no one the world has ever seen. I mean, the world's seen Alexander the Great. This has to be better than that. Imagine that guy like no one the world's ever seen. Imagine that guy at the helm of our armies, advancing our interests and our agenda around the globe. That's an exciting prospect, and that's why people were excited to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. Talk about strategists. This is what you want from a general. He knows what people are thinking. He can supply provisions for armies in the desert. He can cross bodies of water on foot. He can heal the wounded. Even better, he can raise the dead to life. That army would be unstoppable. There's no question about it. And it's so obvious that that must be what God has promised to them that they don't question their assumptions about. They, they don't question their expectations for a Messiah. They don't question their desires to want to have that sort of thing happen and to come and make Jesus king by force if they can so that those things would happen. They just, they just celebrate and honor Jesus as the victor in advance, the one we can all see. He meets all of our qualifications. This is going to be great. Let's have a party. Let's welcome him as a king. They're basically already on top of the world. It's a done deal with Jesus. We've got it. He's our guy. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees. This is how you treat a, a military um, victor, a general or a king who's returning to the city. They took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This guy's going to be our king. And they're even welcoming him with Scripture. I mean, this is Psalm 118. They're doing it right, aren't they? Somebody find Jesus a war horse so he can enter the city like a king. Give him a proper welcome. Somebody find this guy a magnificent steed. Right? But that's really how the next word should be translated in verse 14. It starts out, and Jesus found a donkey. But that... Um, in, this may be totally uninteresting to you. The little word, it's a conjunction. It can be translated either and or but. And it's, in this, I think, context, better translated. But it's adversative. But Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. Here they are welcoming him according to their expectations and assumptions, treating him like the king they imagine. But Jesus, he found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So they had one thing firmly in mind. It's unquestionable. It's obvious. What we need, what God's going to give us, who our Messiah is going to be, what he'll do. It's, it's obvious. They had one thing firmly in mind, but Jesus had another entirely. Entirely. 
They had their expectations, but Jesus revealed something to the contrary. They wanted a king after their own imagination, but Jesus showed that he is another kind of king altogether. He's a humble king. He's a selfless king. He's a king of peace, not war. He's a king of peace whose authority consists of the freedom to give away his own life for the sake of reconciliation, not war. He's not the king to facilitate Israel's self-advancement agenda, to put all those other nations in their place and make, make them our conquered slaves. He's not the king to do that. The promise of this king is the promise to make all wars to cease, to make them cease in some way that just is outside the realm of our imagination. It's not how we would make wars cease. We make wars cease by building the biggest weapons. That's not how he does it. His promise means the eradication of selfishness wherever it's found, which ultimately means the victory of love, real love, true love. That's what his kingdom means. That's what kind of king he is. He came to unite people from every tribe, tongue, and nation under his banner of humble love, self-sacrificial love. And that's what the scripture means that John is quoting here from Zechariah chapter 9 that Sam read in our Old Testament reading. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. and The battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I'll set your prisoners free. <clears throat> so Jesus, in order to proclaim that and, and protest, you're getting me all wrong. You're giving me this victor's welcome in your city. You're going to set me up as a, as a king after the image of all your kings to do the things that your kings do, you're, you're getting it all wrong, and I protest. He did this strange, unexplained thing, and he rode in on a donkey. He, that, that's, that's what he did. That was his protest. Not, now let's sit down and have a Bible lesson why this is what I'm supposed to do, right? And this is how you're supposed to, this is how you're getting it wrong. No, he just came in on a donkey, and it was strange and unexplained. Not a single soul that day understood what Jesus meant. Nobody got it. Until later. That's what John says. His disciples did not, his dis, not just the crowds, his disciples who had been there with him did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, like Zechariah 9, and had been done to him. Even his disciples who had spent years following him, living with him in his ministry, they were left scratching their heads about the significance of the donkey because they had expectations that were not being met here. They didn't understand how he was even protesting. Maybe they just thought Jesus was a bit quirky, right? Donkey, okay, yeah, we'll go with that. But that fundamentally he wasn't protesting the crowd's actions. He let them carry him along into the city. 
Maybe something was a little strange about it, but basically their expectations for Jesus were right. Right? Sometimes we're pretty well convinced that we do understand God. And we're not disturbed about our assumptions about him because generally it looks like he's accommodating us. All the things I ask for, I get. All the expectations I have are being fulfilled. So he must be just approving of all of it. He's going right along with it all. So I've got him pretty well figured out. He's giving us what we want. He's allowing us to move forward with our plans and with our agendas. He's allowing us to be successful in the ways that we understand that word. He doesn't seem to be inhibiting my pursuits, so I must be right, and he must be approving, and everything's good. And we'll ignore that one little nagging indicator, the donkey. We'll ignore that, that one little hint that maybe actually we're just way off and we have no clue, no clue at all. They see what they want to see in Jesus. He's the greatest earthly king in history. That's who he's going to be for us. They hear what they want to hear from Jesus. Like Napoleon Dynamite, you vote for Pedro. If you vote for me, all your wildest dreams will come true. That's what they hear. That's what they hear. If you vote for Jesus, all your wildest dreams will come true. And it wasn't hard to believe that he was happy to go along with their plans. Because here he is being swept up by the crowd and brought into the city. It's so easy to interpret our circumstances in life as his approval of our plans and our desires and our expectations of what it means for him to be God and how that should interact with my life according to my vision. It's easy to think, to interpret our circumstances and think that God just has this blanket approval on all our plans and desires. He's given me wealth. He's given me comfort. He's given me fantastic abilities to do anything and everything I'd like to do. He's given me health. He's given me children. All my wildest dreams are coming true. He must approve all of those dreams because this is how my life is going. It's great. They don't stop to consider what he's saying with the donkey thing. It's the silent protest, right? They don't, they don't stop to think, like, what, what does that mean? Not then, not on the spot. Because they don't want to consider the possibility, they might be dead wrong about this whole thing. It's not even entering their mind to stop and question their assumptions, right? They might need a complete overhaul of all their expectations, but they're not even asking that question. Do we have Jesus right? Are we doing the right thing? Sweeping him up into, this, into the crowd, into the city to make him our king? Is that, is that what we should be doing? Apart from the glorification of Jesus Christ, nobody would ever understand what Jesus meant by the donkey. The contrast with our expectations is too much to accept. When we have expectations and Jesus is coming and indicates that those things need to be changed, it's too hard to hear. Jesus didn't come to advance my personal interests over and against other people's. That's too hard to hear that he didn't come to do that. He didn't come to answer my prayers for my kingdom to come. My will be done. But I don't want to hear that. His ultimate concern is not your, the, the job you have. 
His ultimate concern is not your comfort, it's not your wealth, it's not your health, it's not even the health and success of your, your children, your beautiful children. It's not his ultimate concern. You could lose all those things and discover that they were never his main priority. And that can be infuriating. Like when Israel started to realize Jesus wasn't there to make Israel great again, according to their, their wildest dreams. Ultimately, the friction between their expectations and his reality Ultimately, that friction would drive them to murder him in a frenzy to expedite his removal from this entire situation. We do not like it when Jesus doesn't do what we think he should do. We don't like it. That's what the religious leaders were already doing. They didn't want to hear his message. They didn't want people to follow him. They wanted to advance their own interests in the world. And they were discovering that Jesus was actually a threat to all of that. So they were already looking to get rid of him. But it's so good for him to be who he is and to do what he does. It's so good. It's good for us. And just maybe we should admit that our expectations have been wrong. They have been selfish. Maybe, maybe just maybe, we should allow him to tell us what kind of king he is. Not just imagine it up for ourselves. Not just have a picture of a king in our own minds and voice that on him. Maybe we should let him tell us what kind of king he is and what his kingdom means and life with God. Leslie Newbegin says, if, if sovereignty is defined by human experience apart from Jesus, then the slogan, make Jesus king, becomes a blasphemous attempt to co-opt the sovereign power of God for corrupt human ambitions. The sentence, Jesus is Lord, is a true confession only if the subject has taken total control of the predicate if Jesus defines what it means to be Lord. Only if sovereignty is defined by Calvary. Nobody does that instinctively, define sovereignty by what they see on Calvary with Jesus dying. Yes, that's what kingship looks like. But we've got to let him define it for us. Only if his lordship is understood in terms of washing one another's feet. Is that what it means to be Lord? to do the most demeaning kind of service to others who don't deserve it. That's what it means to be Lord. And to continue Leslie Newbegin, he says, and that is why it was and could only be after Jesus was glorified and the Spirit was given that the disciples could understand. It would take his glorification for us to start to make sense of it all. Not his glorification according to our definition of glorification. I know what that means. It means get him in Jerusalem, sit him on the throne, and let's start rolling over the Roman armies. That's what glorification means in my book. That's not what glorification means for Jesus, for the gospel, right? In John's gospel, he's got a different definition of glorification, and this is what that is. This is what John means by that. Jesus would have to die for us. That's what he did. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he would have to do. He would have to die for us if we're to believe that he didn't just come into the world to stand against us, period. 
He'd have to die for us to show us that he actually loves us. Jesus would have to be resurrected from the dead for us if we're to accept that actually he has good in store for us. This looks like a terrible path. I don't want to follow that king because he's going straight to death. Oh, wait, there's resurrection on the other side? What does that mean? That's good. He's got good in store for us, but he'd have to go through it first for us to see, for us to believe that, uh, that his reality is better than our expectations. Right? Jesus would have to ascend into heaven for us if we're going to see the true magnitude and nature and extent of his authority, his kingship. He'd have to go to heaven for us and take our humanity to God's right hand where it exists now forever, reconciled to God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's kingship. That's the king we need. That's not the one we expected. But we need to see that happen first before we'll start to trust him and understand, oh, your reality is better than my expectations. Okay. Jesus would have to send his own spirit to us So one of the last major events of the gospel timeline that history has seen so far, he sent his spirit to us to enable us, to convince us, to understand his his truth and his grace that all of this, all of who Jesus is, he's not what we expected, but he's good. Jesus didn't just come to tell us how wrong we are, say, no, you got all the wrong expectations, just thought I'd say that, see you later. He didn't didn't come just to tell us how wrong we are. He came to love us and to save us from ourselves and to oppose our selfishness and to do that, to stand against us in a way, but for our good, for our good. And I 100% guarantee that means a big change to everybody's thinking, every single person. Such a big change that his Holy Spirit's work is essential. You cannot understand Jesus unless he has first taken the initiative and sent his Holy Spirit to you. You need that much help. But the basic message of the gospel is this. Fear not. Rejoice. Your king has come. Humble. Mounted on a donkey. Not the king you expected, the king you need. He's come, even though we all had the wrong expectations for him. Every single person looked at him wrong. And uh, we had the wrong plans and desires for how life should go. And, and even though the friction there between our expectations and who he really is, that would mean his death, he came. He still came. And even though we still, people who have been Christians for decades, still misinterpret him, misunderstand him, misinterpret what it means for him to love us. If he's going to love me, he's got to meet these demands in my life, sort of unquestioned assumptions, Right? Even though we still do that all the time, he came. He came for us. Figuring him all out was not a prerequisite for him coming. It's not a prerequisite for him staying in your life and you having a relationship with him. He came humble and mounted on a donkey on his terms for his purposes to reveal what would be a surprising goodness to us. He came to lay down his life for his people, a good king, to reconcile you to God, to fix that relationship, and to reconcile you to one another, to call you to a beautiful life of self-sacrifice as you're refashioned and recreated in his image. He came to turn everything upside down, and it's all good. Why not assume that your assumptions are all wrong? Don't get upset about it. 
when you find your assumptions and your, your expectations being overturned and threatened. Don't worry about that. Why not just go ahead and assume that, that you're wrong? His, his reality is better than your assumptions, always. His kingdom of love is better than your self-advancement project, better than your kingdom. His will is better than your self-centeredness. So go ahead and accept the fact that he challenges you on the deepest, most painful levels. He wouldn't do it if it weren't good for you. You can see that clearly when you look at Jesus as he's presented in the Gospels to us. It's okay to second-guess yourself. It's okay to question the unspoken demands that you've placed on God. To question the things that you pray for. The question, the things that are most dear to you, the things you can't live without, question those things. It's okay. God took all of that into account when he sent his son to die for the forgiveness of your sins to reconcile you to himself. He knows what kind of person you are. He knows what expectations you have, even though you, you actually don't. You haven't questioned that. It's okay. You can question it. So what if you've been thinking about God all wrong? Jesus reveals him to us. He graciously reveals God to us so that we truly may rethink everything. It's a privilege to be able to rethink everything according to the truth of the gospel. So what if you've been wrong about it? So what if you've been praying all wrong? Jesus came to invite you to pray with him to the Father in a new way, to see all things in a new light. We've all foisted our expectations on God in the pursuit of our own plans. He will happily unravel all that with you so that you may know him and enjoy him as he truly is. He's good. So that's good. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you are good beyond all of our imaginings. Um, we, we can never comprehend you entirely and perfectly. We pray that you would give us real peace, peace that comes from knowing that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to reconcile us to you. And we pray that that peace would extend um, even to our self-examination process as we consider and question our assumptions about you and about life and about the most important things to us, the things we pray about, the things we care about most, the things that we expect we pray that you would overturn those things where they're out of alignment with your kingdom. We pray that you would set Jesus Christ squarely before us and that uh, through your Holy Spirit you'd help us to see him for who he really is and not just scratch our heads and not just stare at him blankly, but to see him and receive him and embrace him for who he is and what he's done for us in the gospel because he is good. We pray that for our sake and we pray that for the sake of the people in our lives, the people who um, we care about deeply the people who know you and the people who don't. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us in surprising ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.